0: So I have a confession to make. As you may know, Reckonings just ran a little Valentine's Day donation campaign, where I posted a photo of myself with a sign saying that if you donated to Reckonings by Valentine's Day, I would send you a piece of that sign. Which you could then use to put chewed gum in, or stick on your fridge, or write a note on the back asking someone else to donate, or do plenty of other exciting things with. So when Valentine's Day came around, I mailed out pieces of the sign with no mention of Reckonings, assuming that everyone who donated knew exactly what was going on, which was a total assumption on my part. So, if you donated to Reckoning sometime between mid-January and Valentine's Day, And you received an envelope containing a ripped piece of yellow legal pad paper with a couple words written on it in colorful Sharpie and a return address that just said heart exclamation point and you have no idea where it came from. That was me. And if you did not find such a source of delight slash confusion in your mailbox but you do want to join in on the fun in the future, become a patron at patreon.com slash reckonings. That's P A T R E O N com reckonings. I'm Stephanie Lepp. This is Reckonings, and here we go.
1: In South Philly, there's a lot of small streets. I'm talking like Betsy Ross, you know George Washington streets. There's this one or two big streets, which uh, was 4th Street for me. That was the biggest street I would to cross. And every day I would just plan on it. I got there. Am I going to have enough courage to get hit by a car today? Can I get hit by a car? I'd always jump out into the middle of the street and I'd always wait for this, like a small car. I, I didn't want a big car to hit me. I wanted a small car to hit me. Something that wasn't going to kill me, you know. And it wasn't that I wanted to die. I just kind of, I kind of just didn't want to go home. I'd rather go to the hospital for the day and sit in a hospital bed than to go home and have to put up with my stepfather.
0: That's Frank. You can tell his voice by his Philly accent. Jesse is also from Pennsylvania, but grew up in Harrisburg and has a lower voice.
2: When I was in seventh grade, I went to school on a Monday. My mother had pinched my cheeks so tightly together that I had internal bruising um, in my mouth. And so when I told the guidance counselor, he called my mother into his office after school hours and he told her what I said and She made me look like a liar and said that I fabricate stories all the time and that in actuality, I was the one that was abusing my brother and that my brother and I were fighting and that she never touches me and that I made it up. And the guidance counselor believed my mother took her word over mine and I felt like I was going to uh, suffer as a consequence. And I remember thinking that no longer was it just my mother that was the problem. It was also society itself that I had no one or nothing to turn to.
0: Jesse spent many hours playing with the Star Wars action figures. He liked to think of himself as a Jedi, struggling against the dark side, which kind of became an escape for him. Escape for Frank was spending summers with his cousin out in rural Pennsylvania. His cousin was a couple years older and in a punk rock band and always into new and hidden things. Frank couldn't wait to get away from his own home, and go stay with him.
1: Like the summer before he had a half pipe built in his backyard, you know, where he could skate on. Now he had now he had like nothing. He wasn't punk rock anymore. He was like shaved bald. He looked nicer. He had like nicely cropped pants on, nice nice Doc Martin's. Like I went up there and I looked in his room, and inside of his room was all these like swastika flags and you know pictures of hitler and and i got to ask him what that stuff meant and he said that he stood that means he stood for the white race and that i should stand for the white race too so my cousin him being older than me had an older pack of friends who were also all these neo-nazis and we went to a concert one night. But my cousin's afraid that some of these older skinheads ain't going to recognize me as his cousin. So he says to me in front of everybody, Frankie, when we go in there, I want you to go stand against the wall because I don't want one of my boys to accidentally beat you up because you still have all that hair on your head. And this big farm boy skinhead said, no, I got him. And he picks me up and he puts me on his shoulders like a little baby. And we go into the dance pit of this club. So next thing you know, there's all these fights breaking out and, And when the bouncers kicked all the skinheads out, we all stayed together. Like we all stood outside together. I felt protected. I felt like I belonged. We go to this party after the concert and everybody's talking about their fights that night. And everyone's talking about how they see me up on that big guy's shoulders in the mosh pit and how cool that looked. And one of the guys came over in that party and he goes, Bam, and he hit me in my hair. He goes, When are you going to shave this crap off your head? And I said, Man, I'd do it now if I could. And so every guy that was at that party that night took turns shaving my head, every one of them. One guy would do one row and then he'd say, See how? And another guy would do another row of my hair with the clippers and he'd go, White power. And that was it. I was in. <laughs>
0: Frank was 14 years old. He soon got kicked out of high school for having a gun at school. Then he got kicked out of the house and started living mostly on the streets. Jesse had dropped out of school and ran away from home, and was also living mostly on the streets, doing and dealing drugs.
2: One day I was in Center City, Philadelphia. I was with a person by the name of Shakur, who was a fundamentalist Muslim. We were good at hustling together. We had a person in a hotel room that wanted us to facilitate uh, drug transactions for him. We went to North Philadelphia together, took a cab, came out of the projects, and two police shined spotlights on us and told us to lay down, that we were under arrest. Rather than lay down, we ran. And we ran into an abandoned Abandaminium is a house that has run down that drug addicts use to get high in. We hid behind two sheets of drywall. The police were driving around. The spotlights kept coming through. Shakur turns to me and he says, just say these words after me and everything will be okay. And he utters in Arabic what means, I bear witness that there is no God but Allah. And I bear witness that Muhammad is his final prophet. And I repeat that, though I don't know what I'm saying. And we got away.
0: He got away that time, but Jesse was eventually arrested for drugs and sent to jail. One of his cellmates was a Muslim who started teaching Jesse about the holy war that was coming between Islam and the West. He became Jesse's first
2: imam. And then when he felt that I had attained a level of knowledge that was sufficient to make me a true practicing Muslim, he told me to go to the shower. And he said, imagine that you're washing off every sin that you've ever committed in your life, and you're going to be a baby. Everything that you did before in your life is going to be washed away. And so I went to the shower and I scrubbed, and I felt like This is finally an opportunity to kill off everything that I've experienced and to begin anew. He told me, I'm going to give you a new name. He told me that my new name was Yunus Abdullah Mohammed. Islam gave me structure. I prayed five times a day in a community, gave up alcohol, gave up cigarettes, started to pray started to study. Part of the prerequisite piece of Islam is that you have to dedicate your life to studying the religion. And so it also made me aspire to get educated at a formal level. Gave me a sense of significance and brotherhood, camaraderie. The violence was a camaraderie.
1: The camaraderie was great because I had a new family. That was me and my boys camaraderie that's how we stuck together that was our going out and shooting basketball hoops like other normal kids did no we went out and we we went out and we beat up people or we to fight other gangs so you have your goalies who protect the house you know you have your defensemen who protect the neighborhood and you have your forwards which are like your salesmen you got to find the best guys to do their job if they do their job we win it was camaraderie even if we got our butts kicked We stood together.
2: We went out into a sea of Israeli, pro-Israeli protesters who were protesting Ahmadinejad's presence at Columbia University. We stood in the middle of those protesters and we put up a big sign that said, Mushroom Cloud Over Israel. So this is the launch of Revolution Muslim.
0: Revolution Muslim is an organization Jesse started with a couple friends. Their goal was to recruit Americans to violent jihad, which they did by preaching on the streets and standing outside of mosques criticizing the quote-unquote soft Islam practiced inside, and through their website, revolutionmuslim.com, which had tutorials for how to build explosives and theological justifications for suicide bombings, and audio recordings of Osama bin Laden.
2: We were the first group in the United States post 9-11 to openly and unabashedly support Al-Qaeda on American streets. Ultimately, we're trying to take you from a point of identifying with the Islamic religion into a point where you're firmly committed to the ideology of the jihadists. And then from there, if you adopt the ideology of Al-Qaeda, and their position that it is permissible to attack civilians or to commit an act of terrorism, we would just leave you at the precipice between holding radical ideas and committing violent extremism. If Muslims that are innocent civilians are harmed, then Westerners that are innocent civilians can also be harmed.
1: If they have BET, why can't we have white entertainment television? Yeah, they got BET, they get whatever they want. And look, we don't get nothing. We're, you know, we're just the, the left behind white people that are, you know, the hardworking white people. We're building everything and they're just living off of us. Cause look at the news, watch, watch what's going on in Detroit. Watch what's going on in Southside Chicago. Do you want that in your neighborhood? the white man was losing its its place in America. And we're going our society's going downhill. That's how I recruit. I was a community activist. I was. Yeah. Just for just for the white community, that's all.
2: When I would hear an Osama bin Laden lecture, it would be almost as if he was speaking directly to me. The way he would speak was very mild, very humble, very soft, but his words were very powerful. He declared war on the United States and then was able to carry out the attacks of 9-11, which made him seem as if he had done something almost divine. And he was still living. And breathing he became almost like a father to me I believe I was happy I don't know if happy is, is is the proper word
1: I definitely believed I was at the time but then I was also attempting suicide all the time too so
0: Frank became a top neo-Nazi leader and recruiter. He even had his own public-access television show called The Reich, which he used to recruit young people to white supremacy. Jesse, too, became one of the most prolific jihadi recruiters in the US. He grew Revolution Muslim to the point where it was directly connected to one-third of all domestic terrorist convictions many of them people who Jesse groomed himself.
2: In 2010, the writers of South Park stated on uh, a YouTube interview that they were going to portray the Prophet Muhammad in an upcoming episode that would commemorate their 200th show. And so preemptively, a associate of our site posted a picture of Theo van Gogh, someone who was killed in a street in Amsterdam, for making a film that was deemed anti-Muslim. And he said that the writers of South Park, if they portray the Prophet Muhammad, will likely end up like Theo van Gogh. And he posted addresses that might be associated with the writers of South Park. So I woke up one morning and I saw the threat and I saw that the traffic on the website was skyrocketing. It was immediately covered by press outlets all over the world. In fact, for about two hours, Revolution Muslim became the second most visited website in the world. Wow. Immediately the phone started to ring, emails started to flood through. We constantly got requests for press interviews, but we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of requests all day long. And I realized that this is probably breaking the law. I knew my time was up, that if I stayed in the United States, I'd be arrested in a very short period of time thereafter. I took my family, packed us up, and moved to Morocco.
1: So I was 17 years old. It's Christmas. I'm not nowhere near my family. I'm stuck in Springfield, Illinois. And there was this one kid who I just didn't like. And he kind of was of different political views than I was. And uh, I didn't like him hanging out with my new recruits because I was afraid he was going to steal them. So we called him up and told him we we're going to have a Christmas party. He's more than welcome to. It was neutral ground, neutral night. And when he came over to where the party was, there was no party. It was just me and my buddies waiting for him with guns. We put a gun in his face and we told him to get, in the, get into the apartment. And that he was uh, wanting, we wanted to question him about a few things. And then right away, we just started beating on him, kicking him, punching him, hitting him with the guns, hitting him with the shotgun, hit him over the head, hit him with the butt of the gun. We'd all take turns. You know, one of my guys would beat on him, then I would beat on him. Somebody else would beat on him. Three of us, three guys, we just take turns. And um, and we tortured him for Hours. And videotaped the whole thing. He was bleeding so much that we told him that if he didn't stop bleeding on our apartment, we were going to lose our security deposit and we were going to kill him. So he sat there all night and cuffed, cuffed his own blood in his hands. We let him go Christmas morning. We told him Christmas time. Go home. We couldn't get no one to pay a ransom for him. So...
0: After running from the cops for years, that kidnapping finally got Frank arrested and sent to jail. Jesse was also finally arrested in Morocco and extradited back to the U.S., where he was sentenced to 11 and a half years in federal prison. He started out in solitary confinement, which means 23 hours a day in a cell by himself, but a prison guard took an interest in him and let him go to the jail library for her entire four-hour shift.
2: One night she took me to the law library and I was looking for a good book. And the first book that I picked up is on the Enlightenment philosophers. And the first thing that I opened up to, interestingly enough, was John Locke's essay on tolerance and understanding. And it enthralled me. And what I found was that that people need to be tolerant of people that believe differently than them, particularly with regard to religion, and that tolerance is the way to resolve conflict. The Arab authoritarianism suppresses individual freedom and rights, but the Islamic state would really suppress individual freedom and rights, and people would consider that slavery. Wow, what the fuck do I believe in?
0: While he was in jail, Frank was playing football. He'd been playing with all the neo-Nazis, but they weren't very good. And he'd started to get to know a black inmate named G.
1: So, one day i seen G walking with all the older black dudes and they were going to go play football. And uh, I'd seen... Watched them play one day, and I seen how some were really good, and I kind of missed that competition. So I went over to G and said, G, why don't you let the, ask the brothers if I could play? So he asked the black dudes, yo, can neo-Nazi play with us? Because I had a big swastika on my neck. And they were like, hell no, he can't play with us. And finally, one of the older guys goes, nah, we'll let him play. He can do kickoff returns, knowing that like nobody's going to block for me. And I'll just get my head ripped off. So when I first touched the ball, it was a kickoff return to me. I'm running down the field, and uh, I noticed that none of the kids on my team were blocking for me. They're all kind of like letting, hoping I'll get my head ripped off and that the white boy will quit playing. They wanted me to not play. Even the guys on my team, they didn't like me. Well, as I was running that ball, as I'm running that ball down, I put this sick little spin move on, and I'm cradling the football, and I run through that hole, and then I ran it all the way back that, that first time, and they were just like, damn, white boy could play. After that, they asked me if I play more because I seen I was good. So I'm playing on this team that's like part of my cell block. G's on the team, and so is this kid named Jello. And Tony was our quarterback. We always played this one other team, and they were all black, too. It was an all, so basically it was an all-black team versus an all-black team, except for I came along sometimes. So one day we're playing this team that we really don't get along with. And their quarterback was really good. Big, tall, lanky kid from Chicago, some black kid. He kept doing this one pass where they would throw to the running back. So the running back would come out of the backfield, just short couple steps, and then catch a short little pass and then go. So I read that play, and I knew it was going to happen. I read when it was going to happen again, and I ran across the middle. And as soon as he lofted the ball to the running back, I jumped as high as I've ever jumped in my whole life, and I picked the ball off. And when I pick the ball off, there's nobody, nobody between me and the end zone. So he chases me all the way down this big quarterback. I run the ball back for a touchdown. So an interception and a touchdown. And as I get to the end zone, he forearms me to the back of my head as hard as he could. And he goes, white boy, all I had to do for is just throw that ball one inch higher and you ain't getting it, fucking white boy. Basically, I, almost seen, I was like almost seeing stars. I was out, and I was on the ground, and I couldn't get back up. I couldn't get my uh, balance back. And for the first time ever, all the black kids on my team were pushing all their guys for, for them cheap shot me. Before, they never did nothing about it. I got cheap-shot at every play. You better believe it. I'm this little neo-Nazi wide receiver guy. I'm getting cheap-shot at all the time. They're sticking up for me like legitimately defending me, like the person. Two plays later, I got back in the game, and, and I had a different feeling, and I just remember there was different times now where even if I just made a small play, like guys would call up, and just could be like a little, you know, a little high five or just a little, I guess what's up, you know, good job. Like they finally accepted me as a teammate in that game. You didn't treat me like a demon.
0: Jesse was having constant debriefing meetings with two federal agents. One of them was a woman who took a special interest in his case.
2: Most of the prison guards in the prison, I was a terrorist. I was a scumbag. I was the worst person on the face of the planet. And even other agents, other law enforcement agencies, that come to meet with me. For the debriefing process, I was treated like I was nobody. This was an individual that treated me like I was human. In the middle of all of that, an individual who is being charged with shooting at the Pentagon and trying to burn Quranic verses into Arlington National Cemetery uh, approaches myself. And he knows who I am. And he starts to talk to me. And he tells me that his plot was not the only one that he had coordinated several other plots and that there was other individuals in the United States that were in a cell that he had formulated that the U.S. government didn't know about. And he told me about this plot. The Quran says that Muslims aren't supposed to spy on each other. Spying on a Muslim is close to disbelief in Islam altogether. So, I'm faced with this choice. Do I report it or do I not? Do I spy on a Muslim and tell on him and save people's lives maybe? Or do I just go on about my business? When I think about the young people that was my audience and how many of them are incarcerated now, or even dead, having traveled overseas to join a utopic movement that I set an ideological foundation for. I see how, sort of like, when you skip a stone through a river, the ripples of each flop of the stone sort of resonate out. They don't just affect individuals that you were in direct contact with, but they go a degree of separation further beyond that to affect people that they were in contact with. So there's this vibration that continues. Samir Khan stands out as an individual who I collaborated with and helped radicalize who was younger than myself and was ultimately killed in a US drone strike in Yemen. Um, I feel like um, I had a very serious impact on his outcome, but I could mention 20 different cases that are all very similar with regard to, you know, the effect that I had. revolution Muslim became a it became much larger than we ever imagined it would. The ISIS entities have paid their fighters more money in the event that they are propagandists than they do if they're fighting in the field. In the Islamic tradition it says that the ink of the scholar is worth a thousand times more than the blood of the martyr. The legacy of the idea, the idea that ideas are in fact eternal, continues to haunt me the most. I really, really liked the female FBI agent. I trusted her. And because I trusted her and because she didn't demonize me, I felt like. I had an opportunity to make amends for some of the harm that I had caused. And I reported it.
0: It, the plot that Jesse had been tipped off to, turned out to be real. So by reporting it, he helped prevent a terrorist attack on U.S. soil. And after that, the woman FBI agent took Jesse on as an informant.
1: My, the day of my release, there was planned, the, or was already planned, the party for my release by all the neo Nazis back in Springfield. So here I have all these guys who were all accepted on me, and I'm back to my leadership role. And um, I still was a leader in prison. I just happened to play sports with the black dudes, you know, it was like, and have conversations with them. But I mean, I was going back to who I was, and that was this Aryan warrior. I started to hear things in the movement, like there was times where I'd be at meetings and guys would say, you know just stupid black jokes or something at a you know about how all blacks are inferior and this and that, and I would think like no that's that's that sounds really idiotic. I don 't even know if I 'm friends with you anymore like so I just said i'm going to just stop talking about that, but I still thought that the Jews are different. The Jews are different. The Jewish thing was just so much easier because throughout my whole story, I never met any Jewish people. But I can't find work. Who's going to hire an ex-con, a convicted felon, a swastika tattooed on his neck, skinhead written on my knuckles, and have aggravated kidnapping on my record? I'm 19 years old. So buddy of mine says he can get me this job working at this antique show. And I said, sure. He told me $100 a day. I said, I'll take the job. He says, it starts this Friday. It's just for three days. As soon as I say I take it, the job, I said, I'll take it. He goes, the guy that owns the company is a Jew. He still wants the job. I don't have a job. I need money. I said, I don't have to talk to this guy. I just work. And he goes, oh, yeah. And he goes, I told Keith all about you. He says, I told him, you're a neo-Nazi, and you're just getting out of prison. And he goes, Keith says, he don't give a rat's ass. What you believe Just don't break his furniture, and you can work there. And I was like, okay, fine. And I walked, showed up for my first day. I carried the furniture in and out. I get paid tons of money in tips. For three days, I show up, and he owes me $300 at the end of the weekend. And I made $600 in tips. So at the end of the weekend... I thought he was going to Jew me. He wasn't going to give me my money. He was going to find a way out of not giving me my other $300 he owes me and pay. So I'm planning all these arguments, waiting for him to like not pay me my money so I can like go at it with him. right? So he comes up to me, and as he's starting to say, he goes, hey, I owe you money, don't I? And I'm like, yeah, you do. He's like, how much do I owe you? I'm like, $300. I'm Now waiting for him again. I'm waiting for him to backpedal on me. And he goes, three hundred dollars? Okay. He pulls out a you know, a lot of money from the show. And he goes, pulls out, counts three hundred dollars right in front of me, gives it to me, and he goes, You know what? You're a really good worker. Here's an extra hundred bucks. And I remember thinking, like, You son of a bitch. Like I have all these landmines I set for you to fight with me, and you haven't stepped on one of them yet. Like you haven't you just navigated and and like whatever. I was like, thank you. And now I made a thousand dollars. He gave me a ride home that night. And when he gave me the ride home and then as he's dropping me off, he just goes, Hey, what do you do for a living? And I said, I don't do anything. He goes, why don't you come work for me? And I'm looking down. I had my Doc Martens on my red laces, which meant I'm a neo-Nazi. And I keep looking down at the boots as he's talking to me, this Jewish man And I'm trying to hide the boots underneath the under part of the seat. I'm just like looking at him like, thank God this human being is in my life. It's fear. I was full of fear. I was full of absolute fear for everything. And so. I got with a group of people who also were fear, fearful people, they're fearful, they're losing their homeland, they're going to lose their women to the black man, I mean, you name it. And my fear, I felt, made me weak, and so what they did is they turned my fear into an anger, and they made it to where it was a, a, just my strong point now. embarrassed. I was completely embarrassed in my beliefs. I was wrong and I've been wrong for the last seven years of my life. I've been completely wrong. This is all bullshit. I believed in something I was willing to die and kill for. Something that is bullshit. I had so much seniority in this group. That seniority was important to me because I had nothing in this world. Like I cut everything and everybody that was not part of the movement out of my life. So that's all I have. So the car ride's coming to an end and he drops me off. And he goes, I'll see you Monday, right? I pay and I went home, and I could not wait to get home and get them boots off my feet. Like, my whole image of me is gone, and I gotta build something new.
0: The Jewish antique dealer who gave Frank a job. And the jail guard who broke the solitary confinement rules to let Jesse read in the library. And the FBI agent who took Jesse on as an informant. These were the kinds of people Frank and Jesse had previously seen as the enemy. They were precisely the people Frank and Jesse least deserved compassion from. But who gave it to them?
1: April 19th, 1995, I go to a local corner deli in South Philly right by my mom's house. And I go to this corner deli and I was getting a hoagie and I order a hoagie and the guy behind there is like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And so I started talking to him because I knew him from the neighborhood. So what's going on? He goes, there's a bombing in, in Oklahoma and it's like a federal building. And I thought like everybody else, stereotype, I thought it was Islamic, you know, something along them lines. In the deli, they had it on the TV. The news was saying, so here's a recap. And it was saying the bombing happened here. Medical team showed up. Uh, there's this, they think there's another bomb. And then they're showing like still shots of pictures of of the day uh, in Oklahoma City. And it's this picture of this fireman. He's holding it, And there's this, this dead little girl in his arms. And he's running up the street with her. And her arm's like dangling. And there's blood. And she's, she's, she's deceased, this little baby girl. I felt absolutely evil. I felt like I had, I had taken, part, taken part in preaching this type of evil, that this should happen, that we should do these type of things, that we should build, blow up federal buildings. Like it, it, Someone will ever see their little girl again because of my beliefs, because I, I, the beliefs that I preached. Well, I just wanted to be left alone. I would to just hide in South Philly and forget about everything that happened to me over the last six years. And now I'm like, wait a minute. I know that feeling. I know why he blew up that building. I know why he feels in his head he's justified to blow up that building. Even though it's absolutely wrong and 100% wrong, I can justify it. I can explain to people why someone feels that way. So um, Oklahoma City, I believe it was a Thursday that it happened. By Monday, I, I was, it, it would shake me. So I went to the FBI. When I walked in the federal building, they were like, how can we help you? It's the FBI building in Philadelphia. I said, um, "Yeah, you know, I'd like to talk to an agent or somebody or something. I didn't know what they ask for. And I go, like, what's this concerning? I was like, Oklahoma City bombing. And they sat and they, they brought me in a room an FBI guy comes in, he has a big folder in his hand, and he just says, so, who, you know, who, what's your name? And, you know, quote spell your name for me. And, and we're talking, and he goes, so what do you know? I just needed to talk to somebody about the thought process of blowing up a federal building. So that's when I started talking to him about why I got into the group, why I thought it was right.
0: Was this the first time you had told your story to someone else?
1: Yep, first time ever. Like, faux story, being abused, you know, everything.
0: How did you feel while you were doing that? It felt good. The Oklahoma City bombing remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in U.S. history, killing almost 200 people and injuring almost 700 more. Its perpetrator, Timothy McVeigh, frequently quoted white supremacist propaganda. Frank initially thought the bombing was perpetrated by Islamic extremists but white supremacists kill more than twice as many Americans as jihadists. Frank's visit to the FBI ended up landing him a gig with his former arch nemesis, the Anti-Defamation League. He started by speaking to the ADL director's daughter's fourth grade class, and then started speaking about racial tolerance on behalf of the ADL to audiences all over the country. Jesse's work as an FBI informant got him released after serving less than a third of his sentence. It also landed him a research position at George Washington University's Program on Extremism.
2: I think it might have been September the 1st when I went public as America's first former jihadist at George Washington University. In the morning, Rukmini Kalamanchi ran a front page New York Times piece. The media response was overwhelming. I was soon doing, on average, I would say three to four interviews a day. I was so excited. I felt like finally I had found a position in life where I could contribute and was honored to be given a chance by a major university in the United States. I did more and more interviews. And I struggled to manage my time. I stopped sleeping many hours at night. I stopped eating breakfast. I stopped exercising. I didn't have balance at all. I was traveling a lot. I was trying to respond and do the best I could for every media interview. And then I would see the final pieces. And they would be so simplistic, they reduced me to a very basic narrative. There was no complexity at all. I was just a former extremist. At the same time, I was in a relationship with an alcoholic who I started to drink with. And when I started to drink with her, it was my first drink in 16 years. Uh, A week after I started to drink with her, I smoked a cigarette for the first time in 14 years. Uh, Six months after uh, I got in the relationship with her, I smoked marijuana for the first time in 17 years. And then the holiday seasons came. Uh, I was supposed to go home to see my family. So I'm sitting in my car and I'm ready to go to Pennsylvania to see my family for Thanksgiving. And I feel like I'm just this narrative, this object that is good for media, but nothing else. I'm just a story. I never made it home to Pennsylvania.
0: Instead, Jesse made it back to jail, arrested on possession of crack cocaine.
2: The same things that caused me to adopt extremist Islam were still there, that they had never been dealt with. I thought they were put to sleep because I had left alone an ideology, but I didn't do the work necessary to heal. Deradicalization is a process, it's not an event. It goes back and forth, it goes up and down, it goes in and out, it goes all over the place. One day you're like firmly committed that it's okay to change like this, next day you're a hypocrite in your own brain. There is no end to the journey. Like, life is a journey. It's a continuous process of regeneration and learning. You have to be open to change.
1: A guy went to a, a Richard Spencer rally, and he got caught on the news screaming the N word. And someone puts out on Twitter his home address and says, "Here's this guy that was just on the N word. He's, you know, I used to work with him. Here's his real name." Blah 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 blah. That guy is now like, "Hush! Wow, it's coming back to haunt me now." So now he has some repercussions. There's got to be some type of repercussions. There's family members who don't want them around because every time they talk, all they do is talk about racist bullshit. That's what my family did. They just kind of stopped inviting me to dinners. They stopped inviting me to barbecues because I was a racist thug. Everyone else in his life has said, you're an idiot. What an asshole. Why would you believe this stuff? And they fight ideology with the person. Then I come along and I want to go, and this guy thinks I'm going to do the same thing to him. And I, know I never fight ideology with him at all. I more talk to him about him and and what's going on with him. Hey, back when you were joining this group, is this what you imagined that this was going to be like? Your family doesn't want you around. Is this really what your end result of what you thought when you joined this group was going to happen? The former extremist
2: can relate. They understand what it's like to be in another's shoes, which is the very definition of empathy in and of itself. And they understand the nuances of the worldview that's espoused. Google Ideas, alongside of ISD and some other institutions, was the first entity to put former extremists together and to sort of tease out commonalities between right-wing extremism, Islamist extremism, left-wing extremism, gang violence. And one of the things that they found is that intervention from a former extremist to an extremist or to a radical is a very effective tool. And so they are going to expand what they call their Against Violent Extremist Network. The AVE Network is an association of former extremists and family members, friends, and members of society that have been affected by extremism, that can then formulate as an alternative community that can ultimately challenge those networks and those communities that are extremists. Until we develop networks that rival in size and scope, extremist networks, we're never ever going to be able to deal with the problem.
1: Stop throwing bottles at the neo-Nazis. Like seriously, not working. Battling hate with hate is never going to win. It takes a harder and stronger person to go up and try to have a conversation. And when you had a, people started having conversations with me that were real, that's when I couldn't hate them anymore. Probably the most majestic creature on the whole planet is the elephant.
0: Frank has a story he likes to tell about elephants. The way he tells it, in the 1950s in sub-Saharan Africa, Elephants were being hunted to extinction for their tusks. So conservationists rounded up 200 baby elephants and created an elephant reserve.
1: They thought, we'll get them all together. They won't even know they're from different herds. They'll be kumbaya fucking elephants I and mean, they'll be great. And they were. It worked. Kumbaya. They all got along great. Except for they didn't get along with nothing else. They killed the hippos. They killed the rhinos. They were chasing the giraffes. Like they were chasing humans. They were being crazy. So they started killing the elephants again. Because they were, they didn't know what to do with them. So, as they were shooting some of the meaner, nastier bulls, elephants out of them, these are they're like teenagers, elephants now. They're like three or four, whatever teenagers and elephants. That's what they were. Old African man goes to them and says, "Please stop shooting the elephants. You're confusing them. You need to stop killing them." And they said, "Well, we can't because they're getting too aggressive. That all this." He goes, "Oh no." You don't need to shoot them. You just need to go back to the old herds and get the biggest, baddest bulls that they have, bring them in here, let them slap the shit out of these little ones, teach them how to act like an elephant. No one's ever showed them how to act like a majestic elephant before. And it worked. Within months, the biggest, baddest little bulls got in line with the big bull and the biggest cows they brought in slapped around the little cows and the little cows got along. And I'm not talking about violence here, that's not I'm not trying to preach that part of it. What I'm trying to preach is that we have to be the old elephants in, in people's lives today. Or and sometimes you have to recognize that you're the young elephant and you need to be a, get a mentor. Like we need to step in now and start saying it to each other.
0: My parents are from Mexico and have pretty thick Mexican accents. A couple weeks ago, my dad was playing doubles tennis, and a player on the opposite team made a comment about ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, coming after him. The guy's tennis partner laughed, and my dad and his own partner just ignored it and kept on playing. After the game, my dad mentioned the comment to his team captain, who then wanted to tell the captain of this other guy's team. So my dad called me to ask what he should do. And so I asked him, what do you want? And he said, I want this guy to know that he did something wrong. There's a whole tension around coddling bigots, especially those who commit violence. There are a million reasons why this person doesn't deserve our compassion. And we might be absolutely right. And we might also ask ourselves, what do we want? If what we want is to let our adversaries know that they're doing something wrong, we are already succeeding. If we also want to do some jujitsu on bigotry and see more compassion in the world, well, then we just might have to be more compassionate ourselves. My dad and I went back and forth, and I suggested saying to the guy, Hey, based on your comment, sounds like you might not know many people who immigrated to the U.S. legally. I came legally from Mexico. How about we get together and I tell you my story? Of course, this is not my dad's job. And, unless we all sign up to be old elephants and baby elephants, how will we all become majestic elephants?
2: My father, his family is traced all the way back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, sons and daughters of the American Revolution.
1: My dad was an Italian. He has an Italian last name. My mom is always told us we were Irish, even though we didn't have an Irish last name. We had this last name of Mink, M-E-E-I-N-K. Well, years later, we find out that Mink is actually Jewish. I could have been a left-wing guerrilla in Colombia. Oh, yeah. I mean, it could have been anything. Whatever would have grabbed me at that right time, I was ready for it.
2: It's not so much about the radicalization of Islam, but about the Islamization of radicalism. It's not so much about the ideology itself. It's about the way that that ideology presents itself as an alternative worldview That appeals to people that are looking for something completely different than the world that they have come to experience. At one point in time, I thought that there was a justification for what I had become due to what was done to me. Now I realize that that's the easy way out. That's an excuse. Everybody has culpability in who they become, no matter what happened to them. The only way that I would see myself as a victim is in the fact that our society is ultimately and increasingly so uncompassionate. The majority of the friends that I grew up with in working class America have died from heroin overdoses or are doing 25 years in prison for stealing to get heroin. I could have easily been one of them radical extremist Islam was my outlet. It was my way to cope, It was my way to deal with the pain of not being presented with the same opportunities as the privileged class. It was my way to cope with some of the other variables that are associated with white nationalism and right-wing extremism that we see today. The grievances of white nationalists and right-wing extremists are the same grievances of the Islamists. So until we we address those grievances, then all of their rhetoric about them being hateful and extreme will fall flat because a lot of the grievance is true. I mean, a lot of people aren't willing to become, you know, baristas at Starbucks for wealthy people so that they can drink $8 cafe lattes and go to Happy Apple. You know, they're not, they're not willing to do that. That is a life that has no meaning and significance. Now, if you're a barista at Starbucks and you get to go home and you get to engage in a right-wing extremist network where you are somebody and where you are expressing the frustration of the fact that just because you were born into the wrong class or suffered some haphazard circumstance in life that put you away from that upper echelon, then of course, yeah. So you have to address the underlying causes if you want to solve the problem.
0: So then, therefore, and this might be psychotically optimistic, but do you think there's an opportunity to bring violent extremists in general, like jihadi extremists, white supremacists, together in some kind of popular social justice movement around human development?
2: That's what the AVE expansion into North America is intending to do, and I think that this is exactly what is necessary. We need a robust, comprehensive, and mainstream uh, movement that can pose an alternative for those that are in extremist movements.
0: Jesse Morton is the first former jihadi extremist in the U.S. to go public. Right now, he does work in counter-extremism as a labor of love, and work in construction to pay the bills. Someday, he'd love to be able to do counter-extremism work full-time. Frank Mink is the basis for Ed Norton's character in the 1998 film American History X. He spends most of his time teaching racial tolerance to kids through hockey. Frank and Jesse are both members of the Against Violent Extremism Network, a network of former extremists and survivors of extremism who work to challenge extremism in all its forms. Combined, Frank and Jesse have done hundreds of one-on-one interventions on people who commit extremist violence without the involvement of law enforcement. And they are so much more than former extremists. They are humble and creative individuals with a very dark past that they are still working through with the help of rehab and therapy and meditation and family. They are husbands. And they are dads who've made the monumental leap of giving their kids more love than they got. If you want more storytelling than Reckonings is currently putting out, I'm going to turn you on to a podcast that I have been loving called This Is Actually Happening. It features first-person accounts of dramatically life-changing events, so you can tell why I like it. But it also does that in a way that is really beautiful by letting guests do all the talking with no narration. Check it out at permatemp.org slash happening and on Instagram at at actually happening. Those of you who make an ongoing contribution of $8 or more now get your 15 seconds of fame. Thank you, Kyle Studstill, Tibet Sprague, Trevor Stutz, Dan Weissman, Scott Saunders, Jacqueline Gerson, and Christopher. You too can enjoy the glory of your name in the credits at patreon.com slash reckoning. And an extra special set of thanks go to folks who contributed to this episode. Helena Groot, Vika Aronson, Mustafa Ayad, Oren Siegel, Todd Gutnick, Maureen Costello, Dan Kaserling, the Germanicos Foundation, and to the Gen Next Foundation, whose partnership with ISD and Google Jigsaw created the Against Violent Extremism Network. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and thanks last but not least to you for listening to Reckonings.